Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. On the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Sina Bazilahiki, and today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin by debunking myths around the All Electric Buildings Act. Mark Dunley speaks with Michael Hernandez of Rewiring America. Then, for our labor bucket, Willie Terry reports from a rally where RPI resident assistants called for their unionizing efforts to be recognized voluntarily by the Institute. Later on, Fred Miller of Khalil Jamison Consulting Group talks with Marshall Lazarus about bringing all of our differences to work. After that, Shania Jackson, secretary of the NAACP, Troy, and a spoken word performer at this Saturday's Black History Month celebration, joins me to talk about the upcoming event. Finally, the documentary film Searching for Timbuktu will be shown at the Albany Institute of History and Art on Sunday. Bria Barthel gets us the scoop, but first, here are the headlines. Advocates at the Legal Aid Society in New York, as well as more than a dozen former and current judges and law enforcement officials, are backing a measure that would require minors to have a lawyer present before they are interrogated by law enforcement. The measure would also require police to notify a parent before transporting a child when transporting them to a precinct. Advocates want half of the $1.1 billion for mental health in Governor Hochul's proposed budget to be dedicated to improve services for young people as they face record rates of suicide. Mental disorders and substance abuse are included. uh, Suicide is the second leading cause of death for New York teens ages 15 to 19. A body was found Wednesday afternoon along a section of the Mohawk River in Schenectady, where police uh, spent months searching for Samantha Humphrey, the 14-year-old last seen along the water's edge in November. The State Senate's Committee on Investigation and Government Operations will investigate how IDAs uh, grant tax breaks to development projects. A focus of the probe is a $2.7 million um, 15-year payment in lieu of taxes agreement, or a pilot, for Goshen-based frozen food business Milmar Food. The company has said the tax giveaway was was not needed for the project to move forward. The committee will uh, query IDA's Uh, across the state to see how often these agencies, which operate independently of local governments, grant pilots to developers who say they don't need them. That's it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you are listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call 518-272-2390.
So for our first story, the All-Electric Buildings Act in New York State would require all new single-family and low-rise buildings to be carbon pollution-free by 2024, and all remaining new construction to be carbon pollution-free by 2027. But there's a lot of misinformation around electrification, so Mark Dunley reached out to Rewiring America to debunk these. We're joined by... Michael Hernandez, who is with uh, Rewiring America, and they recently put out a report, uh, the All-Electric Building Act, uh, Debunking Act, and it talked about 10 facts about all-electric new buildings. So, Michael, can you maybe briefly introduce uh, Rewiring America for people, and then, you know, what prompted you to put out this uh, new report? Absolutely. Uh, Rewiring America is uh, focused on the demand side of electrification. How do we allow, how do we provide people with information about how they could um, electrify their homes uh, and what incentives are available uh, and providing any kind of information like that? And so that that's uh, what we are most focused on with Rewiring America. Um, now, I understand that one of the reasons why there's a need for this information is has been sort of a disinformation campaign about the idea of going to all electric buildings, particularly this idea that uh, in upstate New York, that it gets too cold for, you know, say, air heat pumps to actually work. Is that a valid concern? No. Uh, you know, we have found uh, in, in Europe, in Norway, in Maine, here in the United States, uh, in very cold climates, people are adopting heat pumps. They work very well. Uh, and uh, there, there's really no concern about, uh, you know, a, the ability of a, an electrified heat pump to be able to um, warm a home uh, in, in cold climates. Yeah, but will the uh, air heat pumps or even, uh, you know, geothermal ground heat pumps, are they going to cost, uh, you know, homeowners and, and residents a lot more money? Uh, well, for th this bill that is being considered is for new construction here in uh, in New York, and so uh, we've we found that uh, when you're considering building a new building, the the cost differential between putting in fossil fuel infrastructure and putting in electrified infrastructure is nominal. There's a nominal cost differential, and in some ways. Uh, it's it's more affordable to uh, to put in electrified infrastructure into your new construction. Now, one of the concerns I've heard raised is that, you know, when we have uh, power blackouts, and I'll say in my community, <laughs> it seems to be once a month, uh, you know, at least for a couple hours, um, you know, that, you know, having a air heat pump means you can't run it and it's not as reliable, say, as, uh, you know, a gas or propane uh, heating system. Actually, the, the exact opposite is true. Uh, you're far more resilient uh, with an electrified system uh, than, uh, than uh, off an electrified system. With an electrified system, you can have off the grid or behind the meter um, distributed energy resources that will be able to power your, your home without relying upon energy uh, being produced by the grid. And so, and and there's even ovens that have battery power storage in them themselves for induction stoves, uh, where you don't need any electricity from outside of the oven itself. Uh, and so, 
Um, I think when you look at um, fossil fuel infrastructure, modern fossil fuel infrastructure does no better uh, without electricity. It also needs electricity uh, to, to, to run. And so um, that's just not true. And often uh, what, you, what I think we hear people saying is that they might run their oven, light their oven and use that to heat their home. And that's very dangerous. Uh, and so an electrified system is, is far superior and, and much more resilient than fossil fuel infrastructure. Now, I understand that this um, new uh, climate uh, scoping document that the uh, Climate Action Council uh, drafted underneath the uh, new climate law CLCPA, uh, you know, largely recommends, um, you know, air heat pumps and, and, and ground, ground heat pumps. Um, how, how is this issue playing out with the legislature and the, and the governor? I know this was a big issue last year, didn't get resolved. What, what, what's, what's it looking like this year? Yeah, the, the Climate Action Council pointed out that, you know, carbon emissions from our building sector is the number one source of carbon emissions in New York State. And so in order to reduce our carbon emissions, it's vitally important that we focus on our building sector and removing the fossil fuel infrastructure, uh, infrastructure uh, from our, our uh, building sector. Uh, this particular bill focuses on new buildings, which makes it um, very easy because you don't have to hook up a new building to the fossil fuel infrastructure in the first place. And you can just build it electrified, make sure it's energy efficient and it can provide those sources. We've been getting very positive feedback as you're aware, Last uh, last year, the, the Senate included the All-Electric Building Act in its one-house proposal, and we've been hearing from a lot of members in the Assembly, uh, and they seem very supportive. Uh, the, the budget letter to uh, the Speaker advocating for the inclusion of the All-Electric Building Act in the Assembly one-house had uh, over 40 members of the majority conference signed on to it, and there really seems to be a lot of momentum uh, on on electrifying new construction in New York State. Now, you know, so sort of understandable, of course, that the gas industry you know, opposes, uh, you know, banning gas in new buildings. But but also, you know, it seems some of the uh, construction unions have been uh, also opposed to this. Is this a bill that's going to cost jobs, create jobs? What's the job impact of the uh, All Electric Buildings Act? For new buildings? Uh, well, the uh, Climate Action Council found that bringing electrified uh, heat pumps and, 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 and that will bring a whole new industry uh, to New York State and create uh, over 100,000 jobs uh, in, in, these, uh, in this particular area. And so uh, this will actually bring a real boom of, 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 of jobs to, uh, to New York State as we expand our electrified building sector. Now, isn't one of the issues that, you know, I, I, you know, I actually bought, you know, air heat pumps a number of years ago, um, uh, cost, I think, 15500 for the whole house and got about a $5,500 rebate from the local utility. Um, but, you know, even at $10,000, it's kind of expensive for, you know, low-income people. Um, what, how's it coming in terms of the state or the federal government, you know, providing subsidies, particularly to low- and middle-income people, to help them with the cost of these uh, 
he pumps? Uh, it's going really well. Uh, you know, the Biden administration passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which provides uh, tax credits and rebates uh, for people to uh, move forward with their electrification of their homes, for, uh, which includes not only the installation of a heat pump, ground source or air source, but also for the weatherization and efficiency uh, measures needed uh, for the heat pumps to work effectively. And so you, you take what passed in the IRA and you take the incentive programs that are being provided by NYSERDA and utilities like Con Edison's Clean Heat Program, and you, you can really sort of stack these incentives on top of each other. And that can bring us, uh, bring you a pretty, um, bring, bring just as expensive as replacing your current uh, gas infrastructure. Um, and not only is that, but you also have to consider um, going forward, your energy bills are going to be far less uh, expensive as they will um, you, you will have much more efficient uh, energy system. And so you will not be paying as much in energy costs once you make the conversion to an electrified system. So we only have about a minute left and ask you a two-part question. Who, who is actually driving some of these ads, you know, disinformation campaign that we're seeing? And if people want to, you know, read this report, uh, how, how, where, where can they find it? Yeah, certainly. I think, uh, you know, this is really the, the disinformation campaign has really been driven by uh, fossil fuel industry and, and uh, those stakeholders who uh, have a stake in keeping us on fossil fuels, uh, regardless of the impacts to the climate, regardless to the um, impacts to our health. Um, and, you know, I think we really want to make sure people are aware that these are much more healthy, much more safe, much more affordable systems. We're, uh, and we're, we're out of time. You got a website? Uh, yes, go to rewiringamerica.org. Uh, Thank you very much, Michael Hernandez. And this has been uh, Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. That um, interview was based off of an article by Rewiring America. That website, again, is rewiringamerica.org. On Friday, February 10th, roaming labor correspondent Willie Terry attended a rally in Troy Beeman Park by resident assistants at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. They were calling on RPI to recognize them as a union voluntarily in this labor segment. Willie spoke to rally organizer Philip Patterson and a member of the RPI Young Democratic Socialists of America about the rally and its purpose.
Yeah, this is Willie Terry, your Roman label correspondent for the Hustle Mohawk Network. And I'm here today in Beekman Park uh, at RPI, where the uh, workers are having a rally requesting that they become a union. And I have as my guest Philip Patterson, who's chair of the YDSA chapter of Rensselaer County, the Young Democratic Association of Chapter of Rensselaer County. Yes. Okay. And you're RA too? No. Oh, okay. Uh, you know something about it. Come, I'm going to step over here for a second. Because, oh man, I know it's this wet. Well, we have to move because the ground is soaking wet for some reason. And how you doing, Philip? Doing good today. All right. So, Philip, tell me something about the uh, RA. What RA stands for and what they're fighting for. So RA stands for Resident Assistant, um, and these are basically workers that uh, help with the housing here at RPI. They look, they help residents with all sorts of things. They help them move in, they help them move out, they provide rounds to make sure residents are safe, and they basically fulfill uh, many different roles. They're like the Swiss Army knife of the Student Living and Learning Department here at RPI. So how long has the RA been in existence? Honestly, I couldn't tell you. Like, if I, we were on the, if you check our Reddit, r slash RPI, for the, our school's Reddit, you can see, like, alumni from, like, 20 years ago saying, like, how they try to get something going or try to unionize or have some sort of effort to change things. So it's been happening for a while. Oh, so they did try to unionize before. This is not the first attempt. It is not the first attempt, yeah. So now, what seemed to be the uh, stumbling block, the most stumbling block right now? The biggest obstacle? Yes. So I believe the biggest obstacle right now is whether or not the university, RPI, would like to voluntarily recognize the union. And if they were to not voluntarily recognize the union, if they were to engage in, if they were to promote a free and fair election process with the NLRB. So as long as that happens, then I believe we should be smooth sailing. <laughs> so what is the uh, membership like in the uh, RPI? So the RAs amount to about 80. I don't have an exact number on that. And then the, uh, the amount of people who signed a petition saying they would like to unionize was above 75% of the workforce. And this is a low number because we weren't just able, we weren't able to get all the signatures in time. So you have all the signatures now to uh, do a vote? Yeah, we have enough signatures to file for the file for an election with the NLRB. Um, we have the RAs have given uh, RPI administration Dr. Schmidt until Monday to voluntarily recognize the union, and if not, then the RAs will file for a uh, vote with the NLRB. So you have a new president, you know, uh, and the old president I know she was against union. So. What's the new president position now? Have you talked to him? Have they talked to him? So I haven't personally talked to him about unions, but other people have. They've asked him, what's your stance on unions? And he says, and he did not give a clear answer. We have yet to see how Dr. Schmidt will react. We hope that he will voluntarily recognize the union and be pro-union, but we have yet to see any evidence of that because he has not um, made any announcement to voluntarily recognize the union. Is there any unionized employees at RPI? There are no unionized employees at RPI. If the RA union were to come into existence, it would be the, f I believe it would be the first union at RPI. 
So what area, uh, I mean, out here in Troy, do they uh, cover the RAs? I mean, so the RAs they um, cover the uh, RPI housing. So, for instance, you have the freshman dorms at Freshman Hill. Um, you have the apartments that I live in, Colony Apartments. You have City Station in downtown Troy. So, like all these different things, all these different buildings, the RAs reside in, and they um, they perform their duties there. So I, I, I won't ask you about the question about Scrape, but uh, I don't think y'all got that for yet, right? <laughs> Sorry, what is that? About, the, about Scrape, if they don't, you know, acquiesce. Oh, a strike. Um, we hope that it'll never have to get to that, um, never have to get to that situation or that scenario, um, because we hope that the university will be cooperative in the meantime. And what's been the position of the students? Have the students? Uh... So we have gotten almost. Last time I checked, which was last night, around 960 petition signatures in support of the RA Union. You can check our Instagram at, R at RPI RA Union, and you can find the petition to sign it there. We also have made Reddit posts and Instagram posts and have seen an overwhelming support from both the students here at RPI and also alumni who are previously resident assistants. So, um, in reference to the uh, university itself, uh, how has other labor unions, I mean not labor unions, but have other workers, uh, you know, taken out, came out to support y'all? Did they come out support y'all, other workers in the institution? I mean, I know they're not unionized, but, you know, have they thought about supporting y'all or, or, or organizing a, a bigger group to unionize? So, uh, I can't... I can't name any specific groups because, of, but I will say that there has been much talk amongst different student workers, and not only student workers, just workers in general at RPI, about the potential to unionize. So we hope that our efforts as uh, our unionizing the RAs will provide a beacon for other workers to um, gather together and collectively bargain for a better future. One question: Now you're chair of the YDSA chapter. Yes. Could you just tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so YDSA stands for Young Democratic Socialists of America. We're the chapter here that operates within um, Rensselaer Polytechnic University. We basically, what we stand for is the socialist ideals of equity and justice for all, socialist justice, um, anti-racism, and all, all sorts of progressive issues. And we try to, most importantly, bring about material change at RPI, which, we, this, which is why we fully support the RA Union. All right, Philip. That's uh, Philip Patterson. He's chair of the YDSA, Young Democratic Socialists of America, yes. chapter here in Rensselaer County at RPI. Yes. Thank you. Right. Thank you. Okay. Um, I don't have much to say except thank you so much um, to everyone for coming here. It's it's pretty like overwhelming seeing how much support we have um, for this cause. Um, so that's really it. Thank you so much. We appreciate you. Um,
because, you know, you can just say, like, yeah, we support, woo! Unless you don't, but why are you here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right! correspondent Willie Terry at the Troy Beeman Park where the resident assistants, the RAs, were calling on RPI to voluntarily recognize their union. And we have a labor segment every time, every week at this time. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazilahiki, and you are listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy. W-O-O-G-L-P 92.7 FM Troy, W-O-O-S-L-P 98.9 FM Schenectady, W-O-O-A-L-P 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Share it with a friend. If you think they'll like what they hear, that means a lot to us. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Khalil Jamison, Consulting Group CEO Fred Miller, has worked in organizational development for 53 years. He spoke with Hudson Mohawk Magazine producer Marshall Lazarus about the impact of being able to bring our whole selves to work as both an employee and an employer. And this is the third part of a four-part interview. By you bringing your difference to our problem solving, we do a better job of problem solving. If you bring your differences to work every day, we are going to be higher performing, not less performance. When I first started doing this work many, many years ago, it was like, leave your differences out at the door. Leave them in the parking lot. Don't bring your differences in here. We all should be the same. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Marsha Lazarus, sitting with Fred Miller, CEO of the Khalil Jameson Consulting Group in Troy, New York. I first heard you speak, Fred, this past fall, 2022, as part of the Albany Business Review conversation about taking next steps in creating a diverse, equitable, and inclusive business community. I so appreciated your perspective and wanted to hear more. Fred, can you think of a leader, a CEO, or someone high up in an organization that came from a more traditional, autocratic, hierarchical kind of style and always just thought and believed instructions flow from top down? And at some point, there was a light bulb that went off. And they realized if they shifted that thinking to more, as you describe, collaborative thinking, that things would work better in, in the organization. Yes, and I've seen it time and time again, that leaders 
underestimate the talent that they have in the organization, underestimate people's willingness to do even great things in the organization. Uh, we were doing workshop in the UK and we were bringing together a group of people to help bring about organizational change, culture change. And the leaders were picking people and they were picking their regular suspects, the usual people they put on all the projects. So we said, no, expand it out, bring some new people together. And so they uh, did that. And so this group of people start working together and the leaders start interacting with them. And they were blown away that people that they thought, well, that's not one of our stars. And this is not one of our stars. And then all of a sudden, in the course of weeks and months, they said, oh my goodness. And they said, they, they called them shiny people. They said, we thought we only had a few shiny people in the organization. We have a lot more shiny people than we think. In fact, we have lots of shiny people in the organization. So it's a mindset thing. I don't see the person as a star or shiny or high potential. Then I treat them like they're not a star or high potential. And then people say, what the hell with it? I'm not gonna do that. Yeah, and yet I, we find again and again and again, if we give people the opportunity to let their light shine, it shines and it exceeds what they've been able to do before. And so that leader then I'll say, okay, I got a different view of my people. I have, a, I have more resource here than I can. This was at a plant that they were gonna close, the, the large corporate company was gonna close. Once we did this work with them, it stayed open. We probably did this work 10 years ago or longer. The plant's still open because all of a sudden it turned around and then it started exceeding all of its performance metrics. So it became a higher performing plant and therefore one worthy of staying open versus closing. That would have never happened if they didn't realize they had those many shiny people and given them the, uh, the opportunity to perform. And then once they perform, finding the whole plant, everybody does better. What I'm hearing, Fred, is a very important strategy that Khalil Jamison uses is having the organization implement this change, not just talking about it, but implementing the change. And that demonstrates to the CEO the outcome. Yes, yes, and yes. And it demonstrates to everybody in the organization that if we are inclusive, if we uh, value and leverage our diversity, that we're all going to do better. Because it demonstrates to not just the CEO or the senior leaders, but it demonstrates to everybody in the organization that together we're better than separately, that we have talent in the organization, talent that's come in one particular size, shape, or color, or way of looking at the world. And that if we work together, if we collaborate, if we partner, if we don't let the differences be something that's in the way or we're afraid of, but that our differences be an asset, we are going to be higher performing, not less performance. And to the degree that the person who's closest to the work, that understands the work, is making the decisions, once they've been trained and seen as competent, it's going to be a better result and things are going to happen quicker. It also brings to mind, Fred, talent retention. Mm -hmm. I've seen in my years of workforce development, just from my own experience, how impactful that when an employee is given, is trusted, when an employer recognizes an employee's capacities and abilities, all of that 
enhances both motivation of an employee and the desire to stay with the company. And isn't retention such a crucial part of performance? Absolutely. I love everything that you said. I've been advocating for our clients that they have a senior leader in charge of retention. I think keeping the talent you have and attracting new talent is the number one challenge and threat for our organizations today. Because right now, people are doing hybrid workplace, which is fine. Some people are not going to work with very much at all. What's the glue that's holding the community together? If we talk about a community effort, it's got to be a glue that keeps you going. I read this was never a good idea, but in the old days, when somebody was sick, they would still go to work because they didn't want to let their team members down. It's like, I have a project I need to work on. I got a team I got to go. And we don't want people going to work sick anymore. But the bottom line was that I am so committed that even when I'm not feeling my best, I'm going to come in here. Now, organizations need to earn that level of commitment and that level of, of, of loyalty to the organization. And it's not just by saying a sign. And it's not just a paycheck. It's how am I treated day in and day out by this organization? Do I count? Am I respected? Do people see me for who I am? You know, it's important for me. We talk about inclusion, and we talk about inclusion as have people having a sense of belonging, which you mentioned, and agency, which I just talked about, feeling respected, valued, and seen for who we are as individuals. I want people to see me as an African-American man. I want people to see me as six foot three. I want people to see me as a grandfather that's very proud. And I want people to see me as a consultant and been in the field. All this, all that's part of me. It, it, it's no longer do people want to be separated out. You're getting all of me. But if I bring all of me to the workplace, you're going to have higher performance than if I leave part of me in the parking lot. One of your comments during that Albany Business Review conversation was, you know, I tell my wife every day I love her. <laughs> and I... I do, I do, I do. <laughs> and I thought, what a broadening perspective to work life. It's almost like I'm hearing you, Fred, talk about bringing more heart into an organization. And so interesting how you talk about the value and benefits when employees can bring their whole selves. Mm -hmm. I'm hearing you talk about how being accepted for who you are, not being judged, and can make such a difference in an employee's motivation. It's all their, their motivation, their commitment, they're wanting to do their best work. They're wanting to stay, stay. If you have talent, and every organization has talent in it, having the talent stay, having the people that are high performing, having the people that are contributing, I don't care if they're opening the front door or running the elevator or, or working in the kitchen or whatever, everybody in the organization is important. If they're not important, they shouldn't be there. And if they're there, then they're important. And if they're important, treat them with respect. But more than that, let them bring their wisdom and their smarts to the organization to make their job and make the organization better. That's critical. When people get that, it doesn't become a money game. It doesn't come, I'm going to work for the highest bidder. It becomes, I'm going to work for a place that's going to treat me in a way that's going to let me feel good about myself, where I can make a contribution, and I feel like I'm with a community of people that are, that are good with me. That was Fred Miller, CEO of Khalil Jameson 
Consulting Group, speaking with Marsha Lazarus. This is the third of a four-part interview. You can find parts one to three on our website. The 1840s abolitionist movement to give land in the Adirondacks to black men so they could vote is the subject of the documentary Searching for Timbuktu, showing this Sunday at the Albany Institute of History and Art. Bria Barthel reports. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and today I'm delighted to be talking with Lacey Wilson, a new public historian at the Albany Institute of History and Art, about an upcoming event and about her job in general. So, Lacey, welcome to Hudson. Welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you, Bria. Happy to be here. And before we get started with the events, let's hear a little bit about your background. You are the public historian at the Albany Institute. What yes. does public historian mean? A public historian is someone who um, focuses on history for the public, and that takes a lot of forms, tours, exhibits, oral interviews, podcasts, any opportunity and way to sort of teach and work with the public about history. Um, I often contrast it with being an academic historian who does similar stuff. Both We both do research. We both write a lot. But I would say an academic um, historian is more focused on students and through the academic lens and doing this kind of work for academia, which is a much higher and different level than for the general public, like a public historian would be. And in your job at Albany Institute, you have a specific focus on the Albany African-American History Project. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. I'm the public historian of the Albany African-American History Project, and I focus on the 20th and 21st century Black history within the city of Albany. So I do research and conduct oral interviews and connect with organizations that have done work in that arenas, were active during those periods of time for, for culture and politics, activism, anything that really seems interesting to me at the time that is within Black history in the 20th and 21st century. So that involves doing oral histories and doing research and that kind of thing. It's very fun. I, uh, I'm really excited to continue doing it. What are some of the most interesting finds that you've discovered in your research about African-American history in Albany? I think the activism is really interesting to me. I had um, done an interview with Jamila Anderson, who is a current activist about food scarcity here in Albany and really the capital region, and was able to connect their relatively recent work in this arena to a long history of activism in Albany. We had pulled out some newspapers from the civil rights group, the Brothers, who were active in the 1960s, who were also very concerned about food scarcity at the time. We, we put out this report from the Urban League during the Great Migration when a lot of Black people had been coming up to Albany, and we can see that food scarcity and housing issues were very present in the early 1920s as well. And we also had a map from about 1960, which was like a planning for the plaza before 787. So you can see the neighborhoods that were very likely to be ignored or disrupted or destroyed during the planning of both the plaza as well as 787. It was great to see the connection between the past and the present, but unfortunately, both issues of housing scarcity and food scarcity are still issues 100 years later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, which yeah. is sad. You've had a number of events for Black History Month. You have another one coming up on Sunday, the 26th, a film screening, mm -hmm. which is about... 
We are filming this, um, the, um, the film uh, Searching for Timba 2, which is directed and created by Paul Miller, a U Albany history grad, um, very focused on this fantastic story involving voting rights and land and John Brown and this, all this lead up to a lot of political upheaval leading up in the Civil War, very focused on this Black settlement in the Adirondacks. It's a really unique story, and I, I'm really excited for people to be able to see it. I've seen it a couple of times here in the area, and it's a really interesting and engaging story that I, I think shows a lot about what early Black life was like here in the New York State. So that idea of creating settlements specifically for African Americans, we saw that in uh, the Rap Road development in Albany with people coming up in the Great Migration. This was a little different in that it was one person buying a lot of land and donating it for this. Yes. So there was a law, um, the date is escaping me at the moment, that um, what are, was going to allow Black men to be able to vote in New York State if they owned a certain amount of land. And Garrett Smith was an abolitionist and incredibly wealthy in land and money, just started giving away and selling partials and sections of land in the Adirondacks to give Black men the opportunity to vote. It's a really interesting political move at that time. There were a lot of Black men who accepted the land and didn't go to the Adirondacks. That is discussed further in the film, but as well as there were a lot who did and were able to travel out there and try to make that land and space work. This is all pre-Civil War, so it's, it's much earlier than the Rap Road community, but it's like a very interesting story of just of both those communities, the comparison of just being able to create community in these spaces. A number of well-known leaders were getting behind this. Frederick Douglass was one of the early supporters. Yes. And um, John Brown also took advantage of this and would buy and bought land in this near this settlements as well. Um, this uh, one of the main focuses of this story is the archaeological digs on the John Brown property, where they're searching for evidence of these settlements from that time. Was it a successful project? I think so. Being able to like really engage with the movie is fantastic. Um, and I think you'll you'll learn more if you come to the event because Paul Miller is going to come and we'll be able to answer further questions about the creation of the movie and the research behind it. So the filmmaker and the writer for the movie will be there. So the movie will be screened and then there's an opportunity to talk yes. with the person who made it. And you said he's from SUNY Albany? He works for and had gotten his master's, I believe, at SUNY Albany. Yes. So local in two senses. Indeed. You said that this is the last event for Black History Month since it's on February 26th, but that you have some other activities in the works. Well, it's the last um, Institute event for Black History Month, but as we all know, Black history doesn't occur in just one month. There's a lot of opportunities that we're working on to hopefully expand, expand beyond the year, um, but those are still very much in the works. But if you're coming to hear more about history at the Albany Institute, we're going to have some women's history tours coming up in March, which is Women's History Month. We've got some exhibits that have been opened recently that will engage a lot more with the history of women in art as well as our outerwear exhibit. And so if you'd like to hear um, about our upcoming uh, women's history tours, keep an eye on our social media and websites because we'll be publicizing those dates coming up. It's great that the Institute is doing a focus on African-American history. Obviously, it's not just limited to one month, but at least one month started it to get attention. And I hope that we get to a point where African-American history is better acknowledged as American history rather than being off in a sort of silo. Are there any events or trends 
or groups or individuals that have sparked your interest in your research that you hope to be be learning more about in the next few months? Well, actually, there's a lot. There's like a couple people I'm hoping to get oral interviews done with relatively soon that I think will be newer and more interesting for people who would not normally think of themselves as people who are interested in history. I had a couple conversations with Derek Rowland, the coach for the Albany Patroons, our literal next door neighbor on Washington Avenue, who had previously played for the Patroons in the 1980s. I think for local Patroons fans, they may not recognize that as history if it's relatively within their lifetime. But I think it's an interesting story and I'm hoping to engage with that audience, that oral interview, hopefully pretty soon. And there were also, I've I've had some conversations with um, the local NAACP chapter about doing more oral interviews with people that they had honored last year, but that is still very early in the works. So no, no specific names for that portion at this time. Getting back to the film, if people want to come, do they need to register in advance? What's the process? Just come on in. It's included, I believe, with um, regular admission price, which is up on our website. The film will start at two. I would advise getting there a bit early so you can get some time to explore the exhibits and see the museum and get a seat before two. Um, It's on Sunday, so the museum will open at noon. So feel free to have an early lunch, perhaps, and then come down to the museum. And will you also be having documents that you found in your research on display as part of this, or the focus is just on the movie? I don't mean just on the movie, but the the focus is the movie, or will you also have supplementary documentations on display? At this time, I think where the plan is to mainly have the movie as well as the Q&A portion with Paul Miller. And Albany Institute of History and Art is located at? 125 Washington Avenue. And if people want more information, the website is? AlbanyInstitute.org. And once again, this is Bria Barthel talking with Lacey Wilson, the public historian at Albany Institute of History and Art about the event coming up on Sunday, February 26th at 2 p.m., a film screening searching for Timbuktu about an abolitionist project in the Adirondacks. And Lacey, thanks so much for taking time to talk with me. No problem. Thanks for inviting me. If you're interested in learning more about uh, John Brown, there's a wonderful organization. And there's also an exhibition, Dreaming of Timbuktu, on permanent display in the upper barn at the John Brown Farm State Historical Site in Lake Placid. So on Saturday, February 25th, from 4 to 7 p.m., Black History will be celebrated at the Sanctuary for Independent Media in partnership with Troy and AACP. Team Hero, and the Coalition for Black Trade Union. This event will include a Black History Traveling Exhibition by Brother Malik Muhammad, a music performance by King Malachi, beats by DJ Hollywood, and spoken word by Shania Jackson, Diamond Owens, and Justin Irby. And I'm now joined by Shania Jackson, who in addition to performing is also the secretary of Troy NAACP. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Hello, thank you for having me. Welcome, it's so exciting to meet you and I'm very, very excited for this weekend. So as the secretary of the NAACP in Troy, is there an aspect of this celebrating of Black History Month that was particularly important to your group? Yes, we were really trying to focus on talking about the importance of Black history, but talking about it in not only a positive light, but really talking about it before the enslavement of African people. Because when we talk about Black history, typically it is discussed um, with civil rights and or 
African Americans were slaves or, and not even using the words enslaved, meaning you were put into slavery, but putting it as a person term of you are a slave, that is your identity. Because that then leads um, black children and non-black children to believe that black people have that original identity now as slave, which is not who we are. So we really wanted to take time to focus on the overall power and have a true education on who African people of the African diaspora, people of African descendancy are, which is why we're so excited to have the Sankofa project um, by Malik Muhammad. He's done this presentation for some of our events before, and it's a beautiful portrayal of what our true history as African descendants is. Really talking about the royalty and the kings and the queens and what our true history is. So we're very excited to have a better discussion about Black history that's not rooted in the trauma that our people have endured at one point in our lives, but not our entire lives, of course. And if I understand right, the exhibition is also participatory. There's It'll be guided by Brother Malik Muhammad, right? Yes, it's not meant to be something that is very passive, which is actually something I love because that is something that I don't think is as well known, but it's something that's actually very part of African culture and Black culture. We tend to have teach using stories and discussion. We tend to have more community coming between us. So I love the fact that he brings that natural essence of who we are into it, where it's not meant to just be a presentation where you sit and take notes. You're meant to ask questions, to share your thoughts. What did you already know about these people? Did you know these stories or not? How can we now bring these into our schools and our homes and our environments so that we can allow these stories and these journeys to be told? So yes, it is much more of a journey rather than just a sitting sitting presentation. So um, if anyone's going to be coming, I really, really hope that you bring your thinking cap and are ready to have a discussion rather than just sitting and watching. That's my favorite way of learning is like the discussion, the participatory, very exciting. And you are one of the featured artists and you've been performing spoken word for 10 years. So I'd love to talk about like, what's this arc been like for you and what draws you to this medium? Yes. So I started spoken word almost on accident. So um, I started it a little bit when I was younger, where I was actually started about third grade, where I was just venting one day. And I read poetry, and I knew about poetry, of course, but I didn't know how to put my words down. And I was always someone who loved writing. Um, and so I remember one day, I forget what I was upset about, but I just sat and I wrote down my my feelings. And I was so frustrated at life, just third grade rows, pencils being broken and such. Um, and when I remember presenting it to my family and they said, oh, this is actually really, really good. And I started learning more about what poetry was. And I started learning about just the, the freedom of poetry because I love story writing as well, but stories have structure and you need to have characters and settings and plot points and, you know, all of that where poetry is really just an expression of, of emotion in words and you can craft those words however you want to. And then when you perform it, you can really craft it however you want to. So um, beginning in about 17, 16, 17, I started presenting my poetry in school. I started presenting it um, when I was in my church. I started presenting it actually, um, I presented it at least once before with the Sanctuary for Independent Media back in 2020 um, for um, a Martin Luther King Jr. Day event. So I've been presenting at these various spaces. I presented in college as well. Um, and it's been this freedom 
that I've just enjoyed having because as a black woman, especially, it's sometimes hard to know that you're that you're being heard and want to be heard. And it's hard to have a voice and feel confident in knowing that you can use your voice. So I loved that this was something that I could use at times in my life where I felt like I didn't really have a voice. I was young or I didn't think people would really hear my woes. Um, and I especially loved when I really missed when Troy had it, when we had um, Poetic Vibe down in Troy Kitchen years ago and um, with Dee Collin leading it. And I love that it felt like a community where for the first time I was able to be heard by others mm-hmm. and I was able to hear others. And it was just kind of like a listening party where I could see everyone's heart and they could see mine. So when I get chances to present more, especially um, in Troy, who I'm I'm just very passionate about my city, Troy, I, I can't help but just to continue to be drawn to the fact that I can now get a chance to share my heart and hopefully not only share my thoughts and my experiences, but really hope to be a light bulb for someone else to say, yes, she said what I've always felt, but I didn't get a chance to say it or I didn't know how to say it. So I also love being someone who can talk about or, or share my experiences and become a voice box for people who may not have as much voice as I at least currently do now. Speaking of light bulbs, I feel like I was always very intimidated by poetry because there was like a structure and you're saying the exact opposite. So I, I wonder if it's how it was presented to me in the system or. Um, oh, yes. You know, I. Oh, well, speaking, <laughs> speaking as an educator, um, I've been an educator since uh, officially since 2019, unofficially since, I don't know, about 10 years ago, so whatever that math is, 2012. Um, but yes, oh yes, I it's likely that because when it's taught in school, which is something that I never liked, it's very much so taught by these are lines and these are stanzas and you know that we have the red wheelbarrow. And why is the wet, why is the wheelbarrow red? Now it has rainwater. What does that mean? And it's very structured and very strict and very you have to have imagery and you have to have and there's a lot of you have to, you have to, you have to. Mm. And it's ironic because poetry is the most loose form of art there is. That's that's what it's meant for. It's meant to not have a structure. It should be taught in a way where you can say these are the patterns po- people who consider themselves poets tend to use, and we can analyze that. But when you write your own, have times where you just put your thoughts onto paper, where you just put your heart onto paper. Whatever that sounds like, whatever that looks like, that is still poetry. If it's not fall, I mean, really, if it's not following a specific storyline, if it's just showing what we can't really put into exact straight words, and you have to show me a story of some sort, maybe it's you walking outside and you feel the rain on your face, and that's the story that I hear, and that's the way you share that you're sad today. But you can't just say you're sad because that's not enough. That's poetry. So yes, it's typically taught in a very structured way. And typically students hate poetry because it feels very structured and there's all these rules when really it's the opposite. And we should just discover how people have written poetry before rather than study it to know exactly what poetry should sound like. Mm. Quote unquote. (laughs) Yeah. So I heard that you have a minor in deaf studies from SUNY New Paltz and there's some extraordinary deaf poetry slams from around the world. Do you ever intersect these two parts of what you do? Not yet. Um, I started actually doing poet doing deaf studies 
because when I was again in my church and I was sharing some of my poetry there as well, I used to watch um, and I went to a black church. I still do. And part of the culture is doing liturgical dances, meaning doing um, doing these emotion filled dances to gospel music to visually portray the emotions that one may feel because of based on the um, trials or the story that's being portrayed in the song. And I remember watching this and thinking, wow, that's beautiful. But I wish there was actual language to go along with what you're trying to say. And then I discovered, I shouldn't say really discovered because I knew it, but then I got into more deeply into sign language. And I love the poetic nature of sign language because it is this visual explosion of language where many things in sign language, you can translate them in words, but they will not come across the same compared to if you're signing it. And then the way you can sign one word five or six different ways just based on the emotion and the facial expressions and one tiny change in something. And it's so delicate and beautiful. So I haven't, I've kept them separate for myself so far because I love poetry and I love sign language and I love the mediums and how artistic and beautiful and freeing they are, but I haven't mastered them yet. And I think I want to master them individually first before combining them, especially because I'm not um, part of the deaf community. If I was, I'd probably jump right into it. But I also want to be mindful that it is a beautiful language, but a language that is not required of me yet. And I want to give respect to that. So I'm looking at the time and we are running out of time very, very fast. We have maybe a minute left. So just back to the Black History Month event this um, weekend. If I'm going to ask you a big question with like a 30 second time answer. But if there was one thing that you could change about the way that we're taught history and specifically including black history, what, where would you like to see that change? I would like to see the change in explaining why we're doing it. Why are we learning this history? What is the importance of learning this history? And what does that mean for for how we see the world? There's not really much talk about why we're doing this. And I think that we, we would have much better discussions and a better change to our education system if we just stopped and said, what is the purpose? And is this truly meant to help or just continue to um, put, a pre put across the oppressions that have been put forth before? Thank you so much, Shania Jackson. We're very much looking forward to meeting you, or I am, meeting you for the first time on Saturday. Saturday, February 25th from 4 to 7 p.m. More information and registration is at mediasanctuary.org. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And that's our show. We hope that you've enjoyed the episode of Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. We want to thank all of our volunteers who made this episode possible. Contributors to today's episode are Mark Dunley, Willie Terry, Bria Barthel, and Marsha Lazarus. We want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at mediasanctuary, uh, at mediasanctuary or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our uh, on our website and on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks, everyone. We hope to see you on Saturday. It's Nico, the youngest producer. You've been listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, featuring news and views from around the New York Capital Region. Listen at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. on Sanctuary Radio. 
105.3 FM Troy and online at mediasanctuary.org. You can also visit mediasanctuary.org anytime to hear the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on demand or to sign up for our podcast.